Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. IEC 60601 will continue to be a challenge for medical device companies who are developing electronic medical devices. You need a guide through this process. Luckily for you, we found one. This is John Spear, and listen to this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, where my guest is Leo Eisner of Eisner Safety Consultants. Yes, Leo knows IEC 60601 inside and out, so much so that I've dubbed him the 60601 guy. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.guru, John Spear. And today I have the 60601 guy on the podcast today. Yes, that's right. We have Leo Eisner. Leo is the principal consultant in owner and CEO and all those wonderful things that go along with with being the head of Eisner Safety Consultants. Leo, welcome to the Global welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thanks, John. So remind everyone of who you are and tell us a little bit about Eisner Safety Consultants. And then we're gonna have a, a little bit of a conversation about IEC six zero six zero one and some of the finer points and details. Does that sound okay with you? Sounds great. So I'm going to start backwards. I'm going to start with Eisner Safety Consultants first. We try to help our clients, from small clients all the way up to Fortune 500 companies, get through the product safety and regulatory and quality system processes, which can be complicated at times. So that's what we do, and we have a great set of experts to help out. I'm the 601 guy, as John said. I've been doing 601 for... Uh, what is it, about 25 years, roughly, I think? Yeah. 19, when was it? Uh, 96. I don't know. You're making so me it's do been math. a while. You're making me do math. Yeah, I need, I need to do some math. I guess it's 20 years. Yeah. yeah, 20 years, not 25. My background, out of college, I started at Underwriters Labs, got lots of experience, but never did medical. Then I decided to go to a competitor, TUV Product Service, which is well known for medical, and I got amazing training in the two years I was there. And a couple of years after that, I was um, at Carl Sturz Imaging, doing all the product safety, managing all the compliance work, technical file work, the engineering quality system, et cetera, et cetera. It was quite a full job. And a couple of years later, I finally decided to go out and start consulting. So that's been almost 19 years ago. Yeah. And I've been consulting primarily in 601 because that's my expertise. Yeah. And I'm heavily involved in the standards committee's work. So I'm really on top of what's going on, what's being developed, and what's where the interpretations are too. Yeah, sure, absolutely. And you know that having gone through a device that needed to go through the 60601 testing, actually several in the past, every single time it's like, man, I mean, I remember the first time anyway, it was like, I didn't. I don't know that I, I knew Leo at the time. And after you and I 
met and spoke and you shared some tidbits and knowledge about 60601, I'm like, all right, it's clear that if, if I have any questions or comments about how and what to do from a 60601 perspective, I'm coming to Leo from now on. And but I guess on that on that topic, talk to me a little bit, share with me and our audience a little bit about what's the difference between getting approval to a standard like 60601 versus a 510k or CE marking and, and things of that nature. You know, what is how explain a little bit of the relationship of, of all of these things together. Sure. So 60601 is one part of putting a technical file together for the MDD or design dossier or putting a 510k together. But it's not just electrical safety. It's more than electrical safety. That's what everyone thinks of 601. The first thing that comes to mind is, oh, it's an electrical standard, so it's electrical safety. But it covers mechanical safety. There's tons of labeling involved in the standard, yeah. more than most people would think. There's risk management involved now in third edition, which I'll talk about during the webinar a little more. And there's it's a heavy-duty standard. It's about front back four to 500 pages long. So it, there's a lot of detail. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems with 601 that drives everyone nuts, including me sometimes, is it jumps around. It doesn't have all the requirements in one spot. It says something then says, go see somewhere else. <laughs> yes. And so that takes yeah. some extra effort to understand that well. Yeah, yeah. And, and do you have all that standard memorized? <laughs> No, not totally, but I do know a lot about it. <laughs> but, I mean, I, probably uh, it's fair to say that if I had an, an electromechanical device of any kind, I could come to you and you could, once you understand a little bit more about my product and its indications for use and the type of settings that the product would be used in, you would be able to provide a lot of guidance and direction for me as to what parts and pieces of of 60601 I need to worry about and why. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that's probably a fair statement, right? Yeah, that definitely is. So one thing that I should add to the comment for before was the 601 series of standards and the collaterals and all the particulars, which I'll explain again more in the webinar in a really good slide that shows sort of visually what that means. There's more than electrical mechanical safety. There's the usability yeah. standard. Yeah. There's the alarm standards. There's the um, EMC standard, which I have a couple experts in my group that know EMC really well. Very cool. They've designed labs and stuff, so they're great go-to people. Yeah. Um, and then there's home use, if your product's home use, which means anything outside of a clinical environment. So outside of the hospital, the doctor's office, the clinic, the surgery center, mm -hmm. that would be a home use device, even though that wouldn't always be in the home. Right, right, absolutely. I mean, and I, you hit on a few things that that I think are very important, and and something that that's um, seems to be hitting a lot of medical device companies these days as kind of we'll say new, although some of these things aren't really new. But usability, that's that's important. Home use, because I think there are a lot of technologies, wearables, and other technologies that are looking to, to, to get into the home. I mean, I think that's a big challenge that a, a lot of companies are, are trying to tackle is trying to keep patients or, or consumers of healthcare devices and products in home environment. But there's obviously a lot of challenges that, that one has to deal with if you're in that. I mean, there's a lot more 
it's a lot less controlled environment, electrically speaking, than if you're in a hospital setting, right? Most definitely. Uh, home use, like you said, the environment of the home, if you're looking specifically at a home, uh, some have air conditioning, some don't. Many homes around the world don't have ground, which is a big issue that was a three-year fight in the development of the standard, that unless you're permanently installing with a professional electrician, you can't use a ground or rely on a ground. Right. So a lot of products that were designed for the clinical environment that have a ground now have to pull a ground out, and that's going to affect their EMC at a minimum. Yeah. Um, so it's a huge redesign. I've oh. dealt with several companies on that specific issue, and that's taken them six months to get over sometimes yeah. to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that, that tripped me up a while back on a device that I was, that was part of is the um, ambulatory environment. That's also potentially a problematic area because of just being in the field and, and things of that nature. Also similar sorts of issues, I would imagine, right? Yes. And that's the fairly newly released 60601-1-12 standard. Yeah. That's for emergency medical services environment. Yeah. And the scope is very specific about that environment, and it's even more harsh than the home use environment. We had a device that every time we were doing the going through the, we were doing some pre-screen testing on EMC and oh my god, and ESD, and you know, so there's a few areas that seem to be challenging from a device perspective. And I'm sure there's a lot of parts and pieces, and I'm sure you have a lot of advice. But talk to to us a little bit about what those steps are in this process. I mean, I've got a device. I want to get it to market. It's an electronic device. I'm going to have to go through this, this testing at some point in time. But there's a lot of things that I can do to prepare myself for success when it comes to the formal testing. A lot of things I can do to prepare myself for, for my regulatory submissions and so on. So talk to us a little bit about what those steps might look like and how I can do things the right way to streamline my my timeline and my efficiency and not have to go back to the drawing board over and over again. Because you, know, you and I can both share a lot of stories, I'm sure, where we didn't do it the right way and, and or know of people that didn't do it the right way, rather. And, and that's painful. Talk to us a little bit about that preferred process and best case scenario. Yeah. Talking about painful, I had one client that yeah. uh, went to the wrong test lab Oh, yeah. And the <laughs> test lab just didn't do a good job, to put it nicely. They went yeah. to a notified body. Yeah. And they had like a, I don't know, five or 10 page report just on the 601 aspect that I had to help them recover from. And it took them about six months to get there because they had a lot of redesign to do because they didn't think the things through. And that's critical. Yeah. Knowing that's what test point. lab. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of steps involved, yeah. 15 or 16. Okay. Uh, so I'm not going to touch on them all because we just don't have the time today. Right. So I'll talk about a couple of them. The first thing, after you know all the steps, because you can't do it before, is put a project plan together. Who's doing what? What resources are you using? How much money? Um, what are your expected times, including testing time, pre-testing time, etc.? Put that in a plan. Give yourself some buffer because there's going to be bumps in the road. Even if you have a perfect project, the lab's going to give you some questions, guaranteed. I've okay. never come through a project without the lab asking questions and 
sort of stopping the clock of the test okay. time. Sure. So that's really important to give yourself at least a two to four week buffer on testing. Yeah. If you if you can, sometimes that's not possible. You need to know up front once you get into the project what standards apply. Because if you pick the wrong standards and you go to the test lab and they say no, you need to test these others. Right. You're not going to be ready for it. That's pretty important. Once you know the standards that apply, I always how I determine that is I look at the scope and the definitions that are in the scope. And that pretty much tells me, does this apply or not to my product? Sometimes you have to go searching on the web through the IEC and ISO websites to figure out what are the applicable standards. Next, I try to classify my product, especially to the 601 standard. There's very specific clauses that apply, usually clause six. And there's a couple other elements like is the device portable? Is it transportable? Is right. it mobile? Is it permanently installed? Those definitions are critical because it affects your test plan. What tests are you going to have to do? So the sure. next step I do is usually put an isolation diagram together. I do that as early in the project as possible, if not even before the project, mm-hmm. because without that, if I design it, the product and I don't match the isolation diagram, I'm going to have to redesign my product or I'm going to have to redo my isolation diagram. And sometimes you can't. Sometimes there's certain things that are locked in, like your power supply is usually pretty locked in by the time you start a project. Usually a lot of people who use brick power supplies, auto switchers, that's usually pretty good as long as they meet 601 if you need that. Uh Sometimes you don't. It depends on where your part of the product is versus the patient. Sure. That gets pretty important. And, you know, Leo, while you're going through this, you mentioned that there are 15 steps in this process. And I just want to remind our listeners that you're doing a full webinar on all 15 steps to get approval to IEC 60601. So, you know, we'll, we'll make sure that in the text that follows or accompanies this, this podcast that there's, a link to access that webinar and sign up for that webinar. So, you know, you're just hitting the highlights for us today. You're giving us a teaser. So I just want to make sure the audience is aware of that. Great. Thanks for the reminder too. So I mentioned sort of early on that picking the right test lab is really important. So that's one of the steps is determining what are your requirements for a test lab? Do you need a local lab? Do you need one that can turn something around quick and you don't care where it is? Right. Most people for EMC do local. I've rarely done EMC testing away from where the client is. But safety testing, clients sometimes will ship it to other locations. Right. So you need to obviously obtain one or more quotes, figure out what the pluses and minuses, which sure. that's one thing I do. I help my clients understand what are the strengths and weaknesses of the labs. Right. Which they don't always know coming in, which is really important, I think. Yeah, I'm sure. And let's can we pause there for a moment? I have a couple of thoughts about that that I wanted to 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 kind of tease out and ask you a bit about. Is that okay? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, of course. So like labs, I mean, so explain a difference between and and I get these confused sometimes myself, but there's NRTLs and then there's just regular safety testing labs. 
And then I might do uh, some work like pre-screening and things like that. Can you talk about some of the different types of labs and, and help us understand some of the criteria that we need to understand so that we choose wisely? That's, that's a really good point. So NRTL stand for Nationally Recognized Test Lab. It's specifically for the U.S. and it's uh, administered through OSHA. So I guess over 30 years ago, MetLab sued the U.S. government saying, you can't have in the National uh, Fire Protection Agency code, the electrical code, and you see NFPA 70, which is the National Electrical Code, you all listed. It used to say only UL listed. Now it says something like listed and approved, or they made it more generic. So MetLab said, UL can't be the only lab in the U.S. That's okay for that. So MetLab won that suit, and now there are NRTLs. NRTLs are basically test labs that have been approved through OSHA's auditing of the labs that they meet certain criteria for test labs. They have the right equipment. They have the right knowledge for doing testing under certain standards. Mm-hmm. So in the U.S., for the 601 series of standards, what then RTLs are allowed to do is either third edition with Amendment 1 or the UL 60601-1, which is the second edition equivalent. That's the U.S. national deviations. But they're not allowed to do third edition testing. So that's one really important point if you use a NERDL. If you use a NERDL, you're in pretty good shape going to the FDA typically. Right. FDA looks for a lab that is at least accredited to 17025, which is the ISO standard for right. auditing labs. So you don't have to use a NERDL to go to FDA. And NERDL, NRTL, just to make sure we're all speaking the same language. Right? Yes, I'm sorry. That's <laughs> okay, no, okay. It's good. It's good. It's, it's easy to understand. Just want to make sure we're all speaking the same language. That's all. So that's nationally recognized test lab or yeah. NRTL. Or NERDL. Um, <laughs> yeah, or NERDL. That's what I've grown up saying for however many years it's been around. So a NERDL or a lab that's been accredited through 17025 in one way or another, which there's several accreditation methods outside of the NERDL, are acceptable. In the U.S., the NERDL is probably the easiest way to go. Right. you got UL, CSA, MetLab, Intertech, SGS. TUV, most of them are NERDL. Even yeah. Nemco uh, is, which is a smaller lab, but they're a good lab in sure. the San Diego area as well. Okay. What was the other part of the question? Well, the other part, other the, part of it. Yeah, the other part of the question is, I mean, I, I go to the NERDL when when I want that, uh, that testing that I need to have to support my submission. That NERDL is going to be an important component, but, but I might be using other types of labs before I get to that, that final certification testing. I mean, I might be doing some pre-screening or I might be doing some preliminary work. And so how and when should I choose those types of labs and how do they work with the NRTOs? So pre-screening typically means EMC pre-screening from what I've seen over the years. And that's a good thing because if you have a box without a ground, especially, you're going to have more of a challenge than with a ground because of the ground provide some EMC protection for your unit so it doesn't radiate noise out as much. So pre-screening for EMC is a good thing to do. NERDLs typically are not doing EMC testing. They're doing safety testing. So an EMC lab is also fine. Doing pre-screening, you might be able to use that same EMC lab for your full testing. 
the one thing I warn most of my clients is that EMC labs, some know medical really well, and there are a lot that don't. Yeah, right. And knowing that going in can be a real eye-opener and asking the right questions can help you save a lot of money and time because you don't it's you know easily five to ten thousand dollars for emc testing for 601 right. and that's the third edition of 60601-1-2 the emc standard where fourth edition probably is more expensive yeah because there's more involved testing uh the fourth edition for the fda now is due i think it's december 31st of either the end of 2017 or 2018. They moved the date to line with Europe, and I need to look up that date. I don't remember that well, off the top of my head. I'm sure you'll you'll have that dialed in for the webinar. But that, you know, that kind of raises you. Know, I mean, there's all these twists and turns, and I know we're not going to cover every single twist and turn, but you know, <laughs> you <years think>? ago, <laughs> a couple years ago, it was like, oh, well, China is ex- it's still accepting the second edition, but everywhere else in the world is third edition. And, and now we're at the stage where, well, third edition and soon it's going to be fourth edition. So it really kind of leads to really another, you know, when you, it really emphasizes that point of planning is important. But it's, it's also another point that, you know, this is why companies and people like you exist. This is why Eisner Safety Consultants is, a, is around is because you can help provide guidance and direction and help navigate or at least help with the planning process, if I'm not mistaken, right? Oh, definitely. I mean, I can help from nuts and bolts all the way through doing the whole project. Uh, right. It depends on what the client needs. And right. I try to work with them to get what they need. Because sometimes they have some of the knowledge and other times they're going, what's 601 mean exactly? <laughs> <laughs> Starting from, I have no idea what that number is. Yeah. Well, and and I'm sure that uh, you have dealt with this many times. I worked on a project a few years ago came in kind of mid late in the the efforts and I, I asked somebody the question like hey uh, have you done any work on on 60601 and they looked at me like you know I had monkeys flying <laughs> uh, out my rear you know but it was it was confusing for them because I didn't even know what it was and they were planning on submitting a 510k within just a very short period of time and that ended mm. up kind of a challenging exercise because we quote had or we had quote a final design of a device and we were just beginning the IEC efforts and actually the IEC efforts at that time for that project ended up being the gating item to hold up our 510k submission and we had issues we had challenges you know we we had to deal with some couple of EMC issues and then we had to deal with some ESD issues and you know we got to the point where we were spraying the inside of a plastic enclosure with conductive paint and then we were wrapping the boards in capped on tape and we had all kinds of (laughs) and it was like wow this was really painful and wow it would have been great had we known you know the company had known about this sooner and started dealing with that sooner and actually implemented some of those steps earlier in the design process so talk to us a little bit about that what can i do early when should I start? When should I call, contact somebody like you to help provide some guidance and direction? Well, what tends to happen is people call me too late uh, in reality. As early as when you're starting to design or think about your product development, you should start thinking about planning. As early as 
you know, alpha and beta yeah. design, not a month or three months before production. Right. Because you're just not going to get there in time if you have issues. And unless you know the standard well, you're going to run into issues. Almost guaranteed. I won't say always, but I'd say most of the projects I've seen, there's always issues. Mm-hmm. I've had many clients where it's taken months and months to get them to redesign the product to even get close to meeting the standard and then going into testing. Yeah. And testing can take um, 6 to 12 weeks easily just for the basic 60601 standard, depending mm-hmm. on the product, and then whatever additional standards apply. Another really critical step especially with third edition and amendment one of third edition is the essential performance of the device. What are the clinical functions that if the product falls outside of those functions, you know, in in range or spec, that becomes essential performance because the failure of that clinical function is critical to the device. Right. You need to know that because that affects your test plan. So Mm -hmm. knowing that, impacts the test plan. The other thing is there's this risk management file thing mm-hmm. that is a royal pain in the paperwork backside Yes, is a nice way to put it. Yeah. I've sort of recommended to clients if they're going in for the first time doing it, it's going to take one person about a month of their time to put this risk management file paperwork together. And that's after you do your ISO 14971 risk management process in general because exactly. you're going to feed back into the risk management process, the 14971 process. Yeah. But compliant, the compliance statements in the, in the standard say in at least 100 instances, compliance is verified by reviewing the risk management file against this mechanical hazard issue or this right. electrical shock issue or this labeling issue or whatever other issue there is. So, you have to have that done before you really do your test plan. Both the essential performance and risk management file really should be at least well-defined, if not finalized, before you do your test plan. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, that's one of the things that we talk a lot about at Greenlight.Guru when we talk to, to med device companies is how important risk management is to everything that you're doing these days. I mean, the, you mentioned ISO 14971. Obviously, for those that have listened to other podcasts and webinars and read our content, obviously, you're, you're, you're probably aware that uh, ISO 13485 has been revised to the 2016 version. And that standard, too, is also putting a much heavier emphasis on risk management. And, and many other standards, too, of course, like, like um, the yeah. biocompatibility, too. Yeah. 10993, obviously 60601, I believe 62366. I'm rattling off a lot of numbers, yep. folks. Don't worry about what all the, memorizing what all these are. You can search them. But all of these things are good chance 60601, 62366, 10993. These are all standards that you should be, there's others, but those are all standards that you should be familiar with if you're developing a medical device because it's a good chance that they impact you in some way, shape, or form. And guess what? They all point to risk as a key foundational component. Yeah. Well, Leo, I know you've done a lot of work, a lot of homework, frankly, that I don't have to do because you've already done it and you've got reports and documentation and you're very active in the standards community, but you've got this this uh, annual standards trends report. Talk to, to us a little bit about that. I know that's something that 
that you're going to go into more detail also on the webinar. And I, I believe that's something we're, we're setting up to provide to listeners and participants of that webinar too. But talk a little bit about what that is and why I would want that type of information. So I had a great example sort of come up today. I um, got an email from uh, someone that's read some of my blog posts and articles and asked me a question about third edition and FDA. And I looked at their website and I realized they are medical device robots. And that's a standard that hasn't been developed. Well, it's not published yet, but it's one that's in process along with some technical um, report, which is a guidance document on degrees of autonomy. Uh And so that company, I told them, hey, you should look into this product because what I'm doing is giving advance warning of what standards are getting developed, what are getting published or recently published, all in the 601 series, but also in the supporting uh, standards like 62366, the usability, 62304, software lifecycle process, TR60601-4-3, that's the interpretation guidance for 601, which I'm on that committee. I'm on a bunch of 601 committees, Um, a convener of a standard. So I'm very involved, and I was in Frankfurt a couple weeks ago, for two weeks for all the standards that right now we're having annual meetings. We may go to once every year and a half. We're debating that right now. Uh, So I'm involved in TC62, SC62A and D, which are all some of the committees that are involved in the particular standards, the collateral standards, the general standard. Um, Amendment two is already in process and should be published in 2019 if you want to find out more of what's going on with that. That's part of what I'm doing in these reports. Last year, I wrote two reports, one for medical electrical equipment and systems, so more general, and then one for home use because it's an exploding market, and I had a specific client for that. And both of those reports were about 50 pages each. Lots of detail, what's going on in the committees, not just what's public information. Yeah. So if you want to be able to strategically design your product and know what's going on by the time the standard's published, you need some reconnaissance. Do you want to spend the time and money to sit in those committee meetings and (laughs) pay all the travel expenses, pay all the committee national committee fees, which for big companies is ridiculous. It could be hundreds of thousands of dollars. No, I'm I, already on those committees. My answer to that question, Leo, is no, I want to call you because you've already done all the homework and you can be my guide through this, this 60601 jungle that I have to deal with. And you know, let's, let's don't miss the topic. I mean, 60601, I mean, of course, there's a lot of things that are involved, but let's make sure everyone understands how important that is because this is about electrical safety. So pretty a big deal when it comes to patient care. And I think sometimes we, you know, we, we might lose sight of those things. We might hear, Oh, I got to do this. I got to go by this standard because the FDA is requiring that I do that. But really it's more than that. It's making sure that your product is safe. And I think that's the thing that we need to make sure everybody listening to this today and who are dealing with medical device product development realize that all of these things, standards and so on, have evolved over time to ensure that your product is safe. 
I think that's a really key point. Yeah, and one good example would be that software has become a very big deal. And all these stories in the last couple of weeks about hackers and medical devices has become even a bigger deal. That's part of the safety of the product. And that's some of the standards that are being developed or have been developed. So if your product is networked to a network, there's standards for that. There's standards for software. Cybersecurity is being discussed very at length at this point. So that's sort of bubbling up. I don't think there's anything written within our series of standards yet, but definitely very serious discussion about it because it's become such an issue that it can affect patient safety. And there was an article today in the New York Times about cybersecurity and safety and um, not about medical products, but about how there could be a mass hack of hundreds of thousands of homes all at once. That's crazy. It's really crazy. And home use products being in the home for medical device is going to be impacted by that potentially. And there's paper releasing the details, which I was a little leery of because why do you want to release the details so the hackers can do this? That bothered me a little bit. Well, it bothers me a bit too, but, but conversely, I mean, I've, I've, I've talked with, companies from time to time and they're like, oh, that, that home use standard is, is a lot more rigorous and you know, it's, it's going to mean more time. It's going to be more expensive. It's going to mean more testing. I just want to do you know, the standard in-hospital environment type testing, but they know full well that there's a very good chance the product is going to be used in the home. So folks, I, I can't emphasize... Risk management. Yeah, exactly. I mean, FDA is going to look at your risk management. And, oh, actually, under the new medical device regulation, you have to look back at your all your vigilance and incident reports for the past year and report back. I, I forget the organization they're calling it under the MDR that says, I've reconsidered all this, put that into my risk management system, updated it, updated my technical file, design dossier, whatever they're going to call the documents, and boom, you're going to get hit by it anyway. So you might as well do it up front and be smart about it. And the home use market's exploding. Yeah, it is. Uh, That's why I'm focusing on the home use market as one of my areas, and I'm involved in quite a few committees on home use for medical devices as well. I see that as just a huge market that is exploding. I do too. I do too. And and Leo, I know we can go on and on, but I I am curious. You mentioned attending the the event in Frankfurt uh, a couple weeks ago on the 6061 Standards Committee. And I'm curious, what what was one of the biggest topics of discussion that the committee had that that the those of us in the med device community should be aware of? Well, the first thing is probably Amendment 2 of the third edition is started in earnest now. We had a vote on, I think it was 500 some odd items. No, I guess it was about 200 items. And we whittled it down to about 150-ish items, I think, that are going to get worked on in the next two and a half, three years that Amendment 2 is going to get published. That also is going to affect all the particular standards and most of the collateral standards. So it's going to be a huge impact because every time there's a rev to a standard, it impacts manufacturers. And every country adopts those standards at a different pace. 
Yeah. As you mentioned, China was on still on second edition, I believe, which I need to double check. I think they're still on second edition yeah. going into third edition. Right. Um, the other big thing, which you brought up briefly in our call, is um, fourth edition of um, 60601-1 is on the books to be done by 2024, which sounds like a long time away. And some people are going to retire by then, but there's a lot of other people that are going to be hugely impacted by it because yes. it's going to be a redesign of the standard. They're talking about writing a design spec and maybe making it a database standard, which scares the bejeebies out of me. Yeah. Because that would mean they would put all the particulars and all the collaterals together as one database. Wow. That's going to be really expensive for manufacturers, and yeah. I'm against that because... Yeah. The cost of standards are ridiculous as yeah, is, yeah. and there are sources that are some a little cheaper than others, but it's a huge expense for manufacturers. It sure is. It sure is. Well, Leo, I appreciate you sharing a little bit of insight today with our audience of the Global Medical Device Podcast. I want to remind our listeners again that Leo is providing a webinar here soon on the topic of 15 steps to get approval to IEC 60601-1 third edition plus amendment one. So be sure to check that out again. There will be uh, text accompanying this podcast to give you the link and the information for how to participate in that event. Uh, I want you to, to realize that the, obviously, hopefully you picked up today that that this can be a challenging area to navigate. And fortunately for you, fortunately for me, we have a guy like Leo Eisner, the 60601 guy at Eisner Safety Consultants, who has already done all the legwork and the homework, and he's involved in all of these committees. So when in doubt, when you have questions, pick up the phone, get a hold of Leo at Eisner Safety Consultants, look him up on the internet. I know he's at Twitter at Eisner Safety, and that's E-I-S-N-E-R. Leo, how else can people get a hold of you? My website, EisnerSafety.com, or they can give me a holler at uh, 503-244-6151, or shoot me an email at Leo at EisnerSafety.com, yeah, Leo at E-I-S-N-E-R-S-A-F-E-T-Y.com. I encourage you to do it. I mean, the phone call, the conversation is is likely going to save you a lot of time, effort, energy, a lot of headaches. Leo knows his stuff. Check out Eisner Safety Consultants. And again, Leo, thank you for giving us a few insights today. And uh, we'll, yeah, Thank you, John. Yeah, we'll look forward to your webinar here soon. So ladies and gentlemen, uh, as you know, Greenlight.group is all about providing you with guidance and direction and helpful tips and pointers as you continue your journey of designing, developing, and manufacturing medical devices. We always want to hear from you. If anything that we're doing is applicable to you, share that with your friends and colleagues. If there's something you want us to tackle and talk about, just drop me a note and we'll be happy to cover that on blog posts and podcasts and webinars. Again, this is John Spear, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory and you at Greenlight.Guru. And you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.